welcome back to Think, Discuss, Act, the show that gets you thinking more deeply about the great ideas and more. I'm Zach Pritz, along with Dr. Terry Roberts and Dr. Jeremy Spielman. If you're joining us for the first time, we have a detailed background of who we are at the beginning of episode one. I also want to mention our Bonus Bites episodes, which are tailored to our listeners who want to know more about using the principles of paideia and discussion, also known as seminar, in the classroom or with project-based learning. These Bites episodes take the most recently discussed idea and extend it within a paideia framework. All right, well, welcome back to Think, Discuss, Act with Dr. Terry Roberts and Dr. Jeremy Spielman and me, Zach Pritz. Today, our topic, our idea is the idea of love. So I'll start with a question for Jeremy and Terry, and we'll see where it gets us from the start. How might we perceive love differently? Age, season, mental space, maybe you could throw in even physical space, but how might we perceive love differently? Terry, Jeremy, you want to get us started? Terry, go for it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think at this stage of my life, I'm in my 60s. in the 60s or the new 40s or 50s or something like that. But but I suppose what I would say is that you can begin to at some point in life to think about the duration of love, love as bearing out Shakespeare's phrase um, through time. And what kinds of love have that sustenance, that sustainability, and what kinds don't, perhaps. Um, and then what feeds the love that is lasting? And in, and by that, I don't just mean romantic love, although that's certainly part of the equation, but also love within families, love within communities, spiritual love. Um, and I think that love that lasts is not by definition, therefore, less intense. Uh, although I think that's a common supposition that that intense romantic love somehow burns itself out and and that as relationships change and as family members, partners, community members grow, evolve, that it that somehow that it can't last, that intensity and sustainability are inversely related somehow. And I don't know that I found that to be the case. I think that, um great loves are in our lives whatever that means are are those that last not just those that cause us the most um, heartburn or the most leaps in uh, blood pressure um and so i think one of the things that that age allows you to do is think in terms of time which is a um something that's we've of course we've discussed before and also i think that notion that you can begin to see love as something that takes you out of yourself love that opens you up to a wider 
world, again, in family, in community, in personal relations, in generations, uh, love of one's parents and for one's parents and love of one's children and for one's children, whether they be your biological children or not. And, and so all of those things, I think, come with the idea of, of experience. And experience, in this case, perhaps implying age. Um, and so, yeah, I think you do think, see things differently, imagine things differently, and feel things differently. Well, and, and Terry, I want to build off a, a notion of, of sort of the way you reference, like, um, looking at experience with love um, and how we sort of name it in, in its many faces or um, experiences. But, but I am often um, set back by the idea that we don't really have any good working synonyms for the word love. Uh, if we think about the opposite of love, whether that be hate or indifference, there seems to be a lot of more of a spectrum or continuum of uh, words and emotions that sort of can speak about how we might be feeling angry or frustrated, mm -hmm. you know, in the sense that, like you said, whether is, is that uh, platonic love, is that um, romantic love, is that, you know, how, how does that love differ? We use the same word, even though we might mean very different things. Um, I think about friendship and, and the Latin word for friendship, um, amicita is, you know, has the root of amor, which is love, right? So, so the notion that friendship as a piece of love to me is vastly different territory than the love we share even as parents or, or siblings or uh, with our, our significant others. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. It's just a, it's such a vast topic, but yet we don't, have a lot of words to describe it. Zach, how about you? Well, it seems like from what you're saying, Jeremy, it's easier to say what love isn't mm. rather than to speak about love specifically. Um, and I think that's probably where maybe where Terry was going to about experience in the way that that your perception of lasting love might change as you get older and as you experience more things. So it's almost like you see, you see it and you feel it in a, in a certain moment. And then it's, but it's not graspable in the sense of like holding onto it or nailing it down. I think it does have different sides and I think those maybe those different sides of love, friendship, romantic, love of learning, love of of a vocation, um, maybe the, the different sides of love is what is experienced or touched on as you get older and as you are able to experience different things. I'm thinking of like a lot of people don't appreciate or love the place that they're in until they leave the place and they go somewhere else and then they look back and their perception is different and they see it clearer. They there's certain aspects about it that they had never even thought of until they have left. 
Um, and so I, de- I definitely, I think we perceive love differently, but the, the many sides of love, I think, is also perceived in different points of our life. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, it, it's, it's interesting when, when we say, I love pizza, we mean something very different than I love you. And yet we're using the same word. So, you know, to that notion of experience and, and I, where it gets scary is that we maybe expect uh, the, the person receiving those words to, to know the difference. Mm. Yeah. I also think sometimes because of that phenomenon that you're describing, Jeremy, that, that, that word love or the phrase, I love you, it becomes, um, almost intimidating or frightening i mean i've known couples you know who who and have written actually in fiction about a couple who are who would go to great lengths not to use that word and mm. not to use that phrase because a they're not sure what it means and b it seems to have a a, a kind of a power an incantatory power that they're not sure they can control anyway it, it it's a because it's has become such an um i don't know a, a phrase for all for pizza and people and places and children and dogs and cats and whatnot you know people i've known people who just shy away from it entirely you know they force themselves to try to be more precise when they're talking about pizza or dogs you know and our partners and so yeah, I mean, it's it's a, I, I agree. It's a word that has, in some ways, been worn out. It's I was just gonna say, words. yeah, I was just gonna say that's the, the opposite of that is we use it so often to end a conversation with our significant other when we drop our our friends or family off at the airport or you know, and signing off on an email. Does it hold the same weight if if you've said it ten times that day to the same person? probably understand the different uses of it like we understand the person who's saying i love pizza and the the relationship that gets to the point where somebody's ready to use that word and we know those two things are different um but maybe maybe there's something noble about the character who's decided to reserve that word as sacred for but that, but that seems like well, that character has has fleshed out and believed a definition of love that's much more powerful than than a trite sense. And I think we kind of ran into this with the word happiness as well, and that idea in which there's degrees to it. And so maybe that's something similar here um, with how we perceive it. So Zach, that makes me wonder the the question we posed at the end of the last episode for listeners and ourselves to consider is that idea can love be taught. So in between recordings, uh, what have you all thought about in that idea of of love as curriculum? Love is something that can be um, taught to someone. I think largely the the role of spirituality and in human life and the idea of 
um, religion, for one thing, and the practice of religion. And then, and for many religions, um, love is a central idea. And the notion that you can teach the members of a community to love one another and to love some non-human higher being is fundamental in that in that regard and and a lot of times in those contexts there is great care taken with with the words with the diction you know and they'll say this type of love is agape love of the brother love of the sister love of the community and in a way it's impersonal meaning it's not between one individual and another or between one individual and her children or her parents. And, and there, there is in some sense, a higher love sounds like a song lyric, doesn't it? And, and so the question of, can it be taught? I think is kind of central to the human experience for all of those human beings who practice some sort of either formal religious um, experience or who in some sense, you know, think about and, and attempt to become mindful of the spiritual aspect of a human being. And so to whether to what extent it can be successfully taught, I think that's an open question, but we certainly try. I mean, in human history, we've gone to great lengths, I think, to try to create the conditions wherein love one loves one's fellow human beings. And in some cases, that's meant that it really and truly is an antidote to evil, an antidote to indifference, an antidote to, to violence. And so it's a big question. It's not just can one teach one's child to love her brother or sister. But it's a it's a much larger human concern, um, and it's real. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the if you take the word love to mean something like affection and affections, then I know at least in the classical tradition of education, teaching or presenting an order of affections was very important to education. Um, and the teacher is in a sense guiding the student towards the things that are worth giving affection to because in giving an affection, giving your affections to those things, the right things, there's a sort of virtue that's built, character that's built and a strength that's built. Um, and maybe another way of thinking of it is is habits, habits of the heart. What do we, what do we love? And maybe maybe that's a question that can, um, that would be an interesting question I think for students in our classrooms right now. And, but yeah, I agree with I agree with what Terry is saying. I think the. I think there's a way in which the classroom has become purely has a has attempted to become like purely objective in the sense that we study to examine and we study to analyze 
as long as we keep any any moral or spiritual state out of out of it and we can just kind of study it as it is um but i'm not so sure if that's true and if that's what any teacher is really doing when they teach um what do you think jeremy i think struggle with the idea of uh the distinction between setting the to experience uh components of love versus um being intentional about um, indicating when love is happening in, in its many forms in entity or an institution. But if let's say there are those individuals that interacting with a community member or a neighbor, um, you know, thou shall love thy neighbor. Well, what does that mean exactly? Um, and is it, uh, is it an expectation or is there a formula to uh, enact that love in a way that the your neighbor feels cared for is there a kindness that that can be shown even if they don't um reciprocate and and so i think that's where i struggle is do we know it when it's happening or is it sort of only once we've reflected afterwards whether we in fact did it very well or not yeah that's a great point comes back to potentially our definition again of whether love can be taught. Um, maybe we want to move on to this quote by Stephen Mitchell, or do you want to move on to the text? What do you guys think? I'll okay. start with a quote and see where it yeah. takes us. Yeah. Sure. This quote is from Stephen A. Mitchell from Can Love Last? And it reads, if I give my love to you, what exactly am I giving? And who is the I making the offering? And who, by the way, are you? So kind of it, it does kind of build off of what Jeremy what you were saying, Jeremy. Do we know it when we see it? Do we know the I? Do we know the you? Do we know what love is and where it's coming from? Is it really that difficult to put our finger down on it? Yeah. Um yeah, that, you know, that one is is almost a, an untangling, uh, a, you know, a Zen question uh, in the sense of the the me talking to you right now versus the me that was, you know, driving 30 minutes ago versus the me that will be a different me once we're done with this discussion. Uh, but the the you or, you know, whoever the receiver is, if you're also changing, if, if there is that love for you, if it's not reciprocated or it's reciprocated in a different way, then um, does it cease to be love? If, if it's not both parties exchanging, can, can there be a one-sided love? I think most of us would agree that a human being can love a place. And in that sense, is it one is it one sided? You know, if I love the mountains in certain places in the mountains, and I go there, and for me, it's an expression of love. You know, and but I understand what you're saying. You're talking about love between two human beings, and I'm a, I'm I'm less troubled by that idea. I do think one can love unconditionally. I think parents often do that. 
I think one can, in, in other words, without the expectation that the love will be necessarily returned or returned in a way that feels similar or equitable or appropriate. But, and I think also one can love um, another being who for whatever reason is incapable. Well, to me, love is a little bit like that. I, I don't know that I can nail it down with words, but on the other hand, my my instinct is I know it when I see it in, in others. And um, perhaps even in myself, meaning when I do something that is in some sense selfless, it's really about the other. And the other may be a place, the other may be a friend, a family member, a partner, a romantic partner. If it takes me out of essentially an egocentric place and lets me in in and leaving that behind and doing something larger and feeling something larger, that to me comes perilously close to a definition of love. Um, And so there's a way in which if you say, who's the I that is expressing the love, it, that I shrinks, I think. And the other grows in significance and size and, and intensity. And, and I, I, I know I'm, I'm not quite doing justice to the question, but, but I do think there is that love exists. I think it, I think it, some human beings embody it much more readily and freely than others. And um, I think it's it's a significant experience. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be talking about it. You know, if it, if it didn't exist at all, if it was an airy nothing, if it was a fantasy and that's all, mm -hmm. I don't think we'd be having this conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, indeed, I guess I, I would need to read more of where the the context of this quote comes from which i don't know so i don't want to paint stephen mitchell in, in the wrong light but i think there could be two ways to read the quote one which could be a genuine philosophical riddle and then another which could be a philosophical weapon i guess you could say a, or a way to get out of potentially whatever is being asked of the person specifically do you you know do you love me well if i give my love to you what is love anyways and who am i and who are you like i don't know if that's the state of this this question or where it's being posed but i do agree with terry maybe the definition it evades us because it has to be located it has to be specific so i could stand before a couple in which the question is going, well, what do I, who am I and who are you and what is love? And you could probably iron out some very specific, some very specific details over the course of an hour to get at those questions. Um, if you really want the answer, if you're not using it as, you know, a way to evade what love really is and what love maybe asks of us that is 
potentially not something we're ready for or we're strong enough for. Well, and, so. and Zach, Zach, you make me think, uh, you know, in, in reading that quote, we could also look at it as the love of of how much love is given, not just to to those the the use that are external, but the use that are internal. Uh, and and I really do think that there is um, in a concern if we can't love ourselves, in meaning that that's that's something we don't always necessarily build time for. And I don't necessarily mean in a selfish way, but I mean in the sense that we're mindful in a practice that allows us to reflect on uh, can and how do we love ourselves and, and how much, what percentage. Um, it made me think what I, when Terry was uh, mentioning about the love of a place, it made me think about, well, how much love and, and during what time? So do you love the mountains the same during every season, during every hike, uh, or is there a certain time that you love them more? Maybe when the rhododendron is blooming, or, or if you see, you know, something that's more moving. So if if there's more, then there's also less. So that, I guess maybe that's the question of quantity, uh, and back to that notion that we don't really have uh, a good word for the amount of love that we share. Mm. So what you're saying is maybe there's a, a, a degree of self-reflection that's required in our pursuit or ability to love. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think even, I mean, I it let sort of like, I, I mean, if I can say, which I believe when I say, I, I don't think I'm, I'm not being authentic, but if I say I love the mountains, well, which mountains and when, um, and some more so than others, um, it's it's tricky right like the, in a way i almost love the mountains that i only get to see on special occasions more than i do the mountains that are in my backyard and and mm. i don't know you you all might uh disagree or say opposite um i'm curious just as we think about places and love is is there a distinction on or or is mountains an idea that we can love them equally When I, when I brought that up, um, I was thinking, and again, I guess I'm draw, now I'm drawing on personal experience. I think of, of certain places, a certain uh, place on the map, whether I'm there or not, is a holy place for me. It, the Native Americans had this idea in abundance. You live where your ancestors are buried, and that, that's a holy place. It's a spiritual place. It's the place where you are most completely yourself and if you leave that place um they would say you are diminished and and for me personally that's that's true that's that's actually my experience in the world um and so it doesn't it doesn't have the um do you love all mountains everywhere all the time? Do you love them in the rain? Do you love them in the snow? Do you, you know, that kind of thing. That Those aren't really, is the way I, I expressed it poorly originally. But for me, it, there are places which have a strong, mystical, spiritual presence. And, and 
it has to do for me with my forebears and my conversations with other people would say that that's fairly rare most people don't feel that they don't feel that they are most completely themselves when they're in that place as i do and that's okay and i doesn't that's neither here nor there i just i feel fortunate i suppose that i do that i do feel that way but i think love is um there are all kinds of ways to talk about and by the way we said earlier that it's a poor word for a huge thing it's a small word for a big experience i guess we'd say i think poets and writers work with this all the time one of my favorite synonyms for the word love is tenderness that someone feels a certain tenderness typically for another person but it could be for an animal so and um I think that captures a lot, and 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 it does so in part because it does it avoids the use of the word love, which in some senses, as we said earlier, worn out in a way. Um, yeah, I, I I think this is this is a this is a rich topic. I, I guess part of what I would say, and I think Jeremy, this goes back to what Zach said earlier about the quote. Um, if the quote is challenging the the in some sense the reality of love because who am i and who are you and what is this um my response and zach this i think this was where you were going to i think is that that's not been my experience my experience has been that there are emotions that are effervescent and powerful and very short-lived and uh in retrospect, maybe don't even mean that much. But there are also emotions which are powerful and uh, sustainable and sustaining and in some sense deep and intense. And, and those emotions and, and some forms of love, I think, in my experience are like that. And they are very real. And not real as an idea, but real in some other way. You know, not re in not the platonic sense that there's an idealized form of chair and an idealized form of um, love, but rather in some different way. You experience it differently. You experience it physiologically. You experience it emotionally, whatever mean, we mean when we say that. You experience it mentally. Um, and therefore, to the extent that anything is real in human experience, that's real. Hmm. so there's an exactness to it maybe to that experience that's specific um which which i think an idea that we've been circling around is the idea of love of place um and so that that does fit well if we stay on that track with the poem that we have um so do you guys want to move to the poem and see where where these thoughts might lead yeah sure i think that that's a, a natural um extension into more thinking about uh place and mindset um uh, yeah i think that that makes a lot of sense great jeremy since this was your selection do you want to read it or would you like sure, to I, read? yeah i could do that okay um uh, I do want to say just briefly, um, you know, I'm always intrigued by the way that things 
come come to me. Um, and there's a woman, Maria Popova, uh, who's uh, had a website or a newsletter that was called Brain Pickering, uh, and it switched to the Marginalian. Uh, but she puts out a it's maybe weekly newsletter with um, different ideas around um, just, I guess, philosophy, poetry, um, literature in general. And and so I came to this poem by May Sarton through uh, her newsletter that was right around Valentine's Day. Um, and it was just something that really struck me um, in that sense of, of sort of understanding self to better understand love. Um, the poem is titled Meditation in Sunlight. Um, in a space in time I sit, thousands of feet above the sea and meditate on solitude, on love. Near all is brown and poor, houses are made of earth. The city is a hearth. Far, all is blue and strange. The sky looks down on snow and meets the mountain range where time is light, not shadow. Time in the heart held still. Space as the household God and joy instead of will. Knows love as solitude. Knows solitude as love. Knows time as light, not shadow, thousands of feet above the sea where I am now. Is there a um, line or image that either that sticks out to either of you, specifically in light of our conversation so far? Um, I, I would say for me, where I really um, sort of got caught in this poem reflection wise is is around uh that first line in, in the stanza towards the bottom time in the heart held still so how if, if we sort of as being a reference for love uh and and that measure of of time being slowed down even to a still point uh a true sort of reflection or meditation on love as input and output do you think she in that is think do you think she's reflecting on an experience in which time slowed down kind of like we were talking about before in our previous episode how do we perceive time differently well maybe another question could be how do we perceive time differently specifically in experiences where we could say love has been experienced even if we can't define love maybe there's a way in which an experience of love alters our experience of things like time perception solitude um because i mean it seems like that's sort of where she's going with that yeah I, the way i interpreted um the time of that reflection is separate from the event itself it's only upon a deep um quiet 
solitude that we might call meditation that I go back to that moment and really sort of unpack it and uh, inspect it and look at it and think about it. Um, or at least that's where I'm at in the sense of when I'm in my mind in a quiet place, separate, and I am looking at um, seeing something from a different lens, it may be that it was removed from the experience itself. Um, I don't know. I, did, did either of you see it as, as in the moment or did you see it as, as something that was uh, more reflective? Well, I was going to say, I think reflecting, um, I guess my question originally was the mo was it in the moment of reflection that time slowed down? Um, what, because she's comparing love in solitude. So is it, is, is her experience of love, which appears to be as solitude, is that what's slowing time down? Um, so, but your, but I see your, your question is, is, is that more something that happens upon reflection as you look back or can, or, or does it happen in the moment as well? Um, Terry, what do you think? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't. I'm, I've read the poem now, of course, half a dozen times, and I think the what's intriguing about the poem is that it balances love and solitude. In the very first stanza, the last line is the last. I guess it would be line three and four. The sea, feet above the sea, and meditate on solitude, on love. Does it say on solitude and love, or solitude in love? It just pauses and says, I meditate on solitude, on love. And what's intriguing to me about the poem is that we tend to think of love as an active state, you know, as, as in relate, it's relational. I love something or someone. And what seems ambiguous in a good way about the poem is that it balances love and solitude and never resolves that. It doesn't say I only experience love in solitude. It may imply it. It doesn't say, um, it does say no solitude as love. And it, so again, it, linguistically, it keeps balancing those two things in different sorts of relation to each other. It's a juxtaposition and then another and then another. And it never quite gives up its meaning, which is a good definition of poetry, I think, um, for me. And so there's a there's a, a tension inside the poem, a good tension between those two states of being, solitude and loving. If anything, it may imply that the speaker of the poem only experiences love in solitude. Doesn't say that explicitly, but it may imply it. Um, and I, I honestly don't know, is that a good state or a bad state? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? So again, there's an ambiguity there that I don't think is really resolved. Um, and so the poem is more powerful than it would be otherwise. Well, what about the the line enjoy instead of will knows love is solitude 
Jeremy Oturdy of Assad on – I mean, it seems like she's contract – to your point, Terry, about mm-hmm. loving as action, there it's almost like she's placing – the not this this bring the bringing together of love as solitude and joy am i reading that correctly I, zach you make me wonder that to, to build sort of on terry's question uh, about the you know is she all loving through solitude or is it this the quiet reflection that gives the vastness of love that's shared with uh, others and it doesn't display that directly but is it that when we are alone with just ourselves do we um, consider or think about the ways in which we've loved and have loved and will love and is that allow us a sense of uh, joy upon meditation And again, I don't know. I don't know that she, I don't know there's an answer. And I, I'm fine with that. But I do think what's intriguing about Joy and Will, Zach, is that she says seemingly explicitly, the speaker of the poem, Joy instead of Will. And there's a lot packed into that. To me, it implies love like happiness can be experienced, but you can't catch it by running faster you can't will yourself to experience joy and perhaps to experience love that it is a state that you have to be open to uh, and maybe that's that's jeremy's meditative state and it and it comes or it doesn't i don't get the sense that she and again, I'm not even sure the speaker of the poem is necessarily female, but the speaker of the poem doesn't summon love. And again, this is in some ways the secret to meditation, right? You can't will yourself into a meditative state. It's just the opposite. And so it feels to me like that line implies that um, you create room inside yourself for love or joy or happiness and they may come so according to this poem in the reading that we're trying to put that we're kind of putting forth is joy i mean is love able to be taught which was our first one of our first questions can love be taught in light of Right, willing it versus setting the boundaries to experience it. Is that what you mean, Zach? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. It, that exactly. is. It is interesting because because it would imply that that you know if you swapped out will to to teach or taught, it you know would it would it read the same way um, versus the joy of the experience, which maybe like Terry was saying is, um, but as he he mentioned about meditation, it makes me think like you can learn aspects of how to become a better meditator um but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to become for whatever better means uh when you when you sit in solitude Mm -hmm. but there is a lot of discipline potentially and i guess you could say will 
in even i mean i've tried the you know meditate for 10 minutes a day and then try to meditate for 20 minutes and you can feel how difficult that is you can feel your will wanting to do a million things but she's definitely seeing something happening i don't know i don't think it's a formula but something happening with solitude and love um space space being a part of that as well no i was just gonna say space and time she plays around with space he the speaker plays around with space and time Mm -hmm. as well um there's an eastern this is a passage from i guess passage to india by ian forster and he talks about the the great eastern holy man who's a character in the novel tries to explain to the englishman that the milkmaids dance their dance and they sing their song and they invite Krishna to come. And for Krishna, you can substitute love or joy. He doesn't come. They Next day, they sing their song and they dance their dance and they invite Krishna to come. He doesn't come. The next day, and you know how this goes, one day, he comes. And the idea being that you can, I think, I hear echoes of this, that part of what this poem is about is not forcing it, is not willing it, is not competing for it, a state of joy or love, Um, but rather letting it exist. And well, Terry, and that, you, make, you make me think a lot about, and not that this is the opposite of love, but there is a certain anxiety that can surface if you feel like love with a, a friend, a partner, a, a place, a, a, a pet, if it's not reciprocated, that we start to wonder or question, am I not doing this right? Am I not being caring enough? Am I not being kind enough? Maybe I need to to buy flowers again or, or do this favor. So it does make you wonder, you know, where I feel like we often, whether we're willing to admit it or not, second guess um, the work involved with, with fortifying relationships uh, that we like to consider loving relationships, whatever they may be. Which, you know, when you think about the commercialization of Valentine's day, they, they exploit that really really good way you know if you only got a dozen roses are you not as loving as the person that got three dozen there's a lot of energy put into let me show you let me display to you how much uh love i've given i'm giving or sharing maybe if it's quantified then it's easier for us to handle which, which again gets back to our original discussion about how evasive it really is. And is it really love if what you're doing has to be reciprocated in order for you to feel not only reciprocated, but even appreciated? Or like, can you love somebody and remain anonymous even in your, in your love of them? Do you have to be, does it have to be known and appreciated that you were the one who did that thing? That was great for that person. 
um or is it this the simple act of desiring the good for that person regardless of appreciation or anything that you have done so thank you you just described the plot of great expectations for words <laughs> <laughs> or well i thought i went down that same road but the other side coin zach it would be somebody let's say who practices loving kindness meditation who who can wish uh well for um themselves and for their family and and someone close to them and then sort of work their way out even to the people that um cause them great frustration and you know mm. can i want someone to be healthy and happy and free of suffering if they they i see them first thing in the morning and they immediately uh raise my blood pressure you know mm -hmm. so so I, I you know to that end i think that like altruistic like i'm going to to you know focus on these things for you um mm -hmm. as you know for, for the pure benefit of wanting your life to have less suffering but also maybe that it makes me slightly better in just mm -hmm. recognizing that i can be kind well and it seems like in her in in the this poem that there is a perception uh movement that moves throughout the poem that's kind of similar to what you're speaking of Jeremy, and maybe that's why she continues. She's in the poet keeps keeps referring to space and time and light. That the solid maybe that's the solitude that knows love that is love provides a better perception of life. And when you don't ever have that solitude and you don't ever know love in, in the complete, you know, uh, the complete solitude of your own heart, well, then you're not going to, you're not going to know it when you start to move out into the city and the people and all those things. So it's not like she's saying, love and solitude only solitude and, and only speaking of that she is speaking of it in connection to space and time and light and all these things um as she reflects on her perception yeah I, I do think that there there's a natural uh bridge into reflection and emotion and naming of whatever things we're feeling um whether it be love or something else i i wonder you know as sort of thinking about an action activity for this episode um originally i, I thought it was something along the lines of of you know attempt to reflect or meditate on those you love and sort of you know spread it out in, in loving kindness but um it, I, I want to adapt a, a, a different version of that um, back to sort of the frequency of when we use the word love. So um, my action item is, is really a, a, a question to ponder further. But if you could only say, I love you uh, once a day to those that you interact with, 
how might that change the way you end a phone call, uh, close the door, um, you know, finish out the evening or start the day. Uh, and, and maybe that's to, to just weigh and consider the frequency of the term and its value versus the heaviness as we started out with of that first time saying it uh, when you don't know if it's going to be responded to um, as opposed to it's a, an automatic closing to a phone call. Yeah, I really like that as a, as a call to action who even in the sense of that would require you to think about your definition of love or the things that you love in comparison to other things to recognize the way in which we potentially use the term in a way that's trite and sort of diminishes its its meaning so that in and of itself is a form of reflection and meditation so i really like that jeremy terry what comes to mind when you hear that challenge what what's what's going on in your head about about that idea of can i if i could only say it once how might it it shift well you i think you give some care to when you said it for one thing i mean there's 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 sort of two sides to that coin one side is i'm going to use if, 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 if this really matters to me, and I think the assumption is that, that it does, I'm going to pick the moment wherein the words have the most power and the most meaning. Um, that's one thing. The other thing is I think it causes us to think of what, what kinds of emotions we're just sort of sweeping up into this great big net called I love you. And, and how you might express them, how you might say other things. I will miss you until I see you again. Um, I can't wait until supper time because that's my favorite part of the day to be with you. I can't wait until we, you know, in other words, I think it would cause us to be a, a little bit less habitual and a little more inventive, a little more creative um, with what we say and how we say it. Um, which is always a good thing, I think. You, you've already set a, a higher bar with those two phrases of, of how to end a conversation. I, I'm jotting down notes to, to, to use that this afternoon. So <laughs> there you go. There you thank go. Thank you for the, mm -hmm. the, the shift out from the habitual love you bye, you know, to mm -hmm. can't wait for us to continue this conversation. I really enjoy when we get to talk. Like that feels like it weighs heavier than, you know, that's the third time I've, I've said it just because that's what you say, or you reciprocate because that's what they said. Mm -hmm. Now, hopefully our significant others feel the same way. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. If, <laughs> if they say it and you don't respond back, cause you say, I only could say it once. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. I feel like we're we're at a pretty good spot. We've got a good challenge. Um, I don't know if we've necessarily thought about what's next. So it may be for this one, we we do a little um, thinking about our next uh, great idea that we want to discuss. Uh, but I do want to say too, uh, Terry, excellent job in your interview with Nikki. I, I think that uh, a lot of folks have enjoyed listening to that and 
to talk to about these ideas and sort of balance off of what they've heard and, and hear how they interact with these same ideas. So be on the lookout for additional discussions and even potentially added guests to these episodes. Make sure to check out our website, www.paideia.org, to access the discussion text we used in the Paideia podcast seminar plan if you're interested in having a similar discussion. Thanks for listening to Think, Discuss, Act. Please consider subscribing and sharing the podcast with a friend to keep the discussion going.